This is the Coogee Base Special, a crisis management podcast brought to you by Trevor Shea Pivot. My name is Garth Callender, and each episode I'm going to take you on a journey to explore crises from Australia and around the globe. We're going to unpack them a little to understand what triggered them, what the impact has been, not just for the organisation, but often the industry sector and beyond. And most importantly, we're going to look at what lessons we can learn from them. In this episode, we break the mould a little bit and we do something a bit unusual. I delve into my background and talk about some of the incidents in my career that have shaped my views on risk and crisis management. We discuss how, through my experiences in war zones, I've developed a really strong view on the importance of being able to conceptualise risk and then be able to contextualise it and how it can affect your organisation. Most importantly, we talk about uh, how I believe real leadership comes from being able to guide your organisation through turbulent times and unforeseen incidents. When risks are realised and you find yourself and your people in the midst of a crisis. A quick warning, this episode is based on my experiences from the military and some of the content could be a bit confronting for some. Notwithstanding, I hope you enjoy, or at least I hope you get something out of what we've pulled together in this podcast. I'm excited about our topic today because, you know, I've read your book. I've known you for all these years and uh, we haven't actually spoken about your time uh, in the military much. So this is very, it's going to be really interesting for me. I feel a little bit awkward with this one. It feels a bit self-indulgent. So what's your podcast about? I was me talking about myself. (laughs) Uh, Me and more of me. (laughs) Yeah. um, But I... I've had some amazing experience in the military, some good, some bad. And I've learned, particularly since leaving the regular military, how relevant some of these experiences are and how they've mm. shaped the way I think about crisis management and right. leadership and decision making in particular. Yeah, what I hope did you I actually do? What, what did I do in the military? What did you actually do in the military? Yeah. <laughs> We've spoke about this before because you said I was um, really... Um, what was the, the term you secretive about my secretive. time? Yeah, I probably was. I did some things which are, I had some postings which were a bit sensitive, but I think other times it's just really difficult to explain to people what you did. So I'll try and do my best here. Okay. So, cause I, I spent what, 17 years in the regular army. The first, uh, the first probably seven or eight were somewhat inconsequential. I, it started off as a rifleman in an infantry battalion, then ended up going to Duntroon and ended up as a lieutenant in the cavalry. So I worked in an organisation which was based on light armoured vehicles, so 13-tonne, eight-wheeled, or amphibious at the time, um, armoured oh. vehicles. And I was in charge of, of six of them and about 25 soldiers. Done a few interesting things over the years. So took a, a troop over to Baghdad in 2004, uh, went back again in 2006, got really interested in the improvised explosive device or IED threat from what I'd seen in Iraq. And so got a mm. got a job working down in Canberra in the sort of strategic realm and dealing with a broader technical intelligence picture around them. And that led to, to leading a team in Afghanistan doing post-blast work. So re- recovering evidence from bomb blasts, reverse engineering it, feeding it into the intelligence picture, but also instructing um, the, the, the combat force on the ground about the weapons that were being used against them. So incredibly rewarding role and came back from that deployment and trained leadership teams about to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. 
I finished my time in the regular army as a squadron commander, so commanding uh, about 40 armoured vehicles and, and a, about 120 soldiers. Uh, but Do I, you know I a guess, bit about leadership? So I've learned a, a lot about leadership over the mm. years through my own experiences, through seeing some and, and working for some incredible leaders over the years. And I guess I've also seen some examples of poor leadership and I've learned from that. So, yeah, I'd like to think that I have a a wealth of experience on on the leadership side. It's funny. So what we're going to talk about today will be, in essence, some of the things I bring up in some of the corporate speaking that I do, because a lot of it is just that explanation of how I think my experience from the military is translated in what I know about crisis management and leadership. So, so yeah, I hope this doesn't seem too self-indulgent with me just, um, me just drawing off about myself. But uh, No, it's fine. I'm going to ask you more questions. <laughs> I'm, going to force you, I'm going to force you to talk about yourself because it's hard to get you to do it. So I want to talk about your book a little bit. So you, you wrote a book after you left the army. Mm-hmm. And um, tell us just a little bit about that. It was actually written from a series of journal entries, which I'd, I'd written uh, when I was deployed overseas, it was every night before I went to bed, particularly my last two deployments, I would just spend a few minutes just scribbling down some notes from the day. And then uh, a few years later, I, I turned that into a bit of a manuscript and, um, and was lucky enough to, to get it picked up to be published. So it was um, released in 2015. It's called After the Blast. Wonderful book. Wow, I so enjoyed it. So, so t- let's talk a little bit about Baghdad in 2004. Give us a give us a bit of a scoop of what happened to you. I'll set the scene really. Uh, so, like I said, I, my first deployment as a young lieutenant was in the second half of 2004. I was the the commander of the of my troops, so the cavalry element of part of an organisation which is called the um, Australian Security Detachment, Baghdad, or colloquially known as, as SECDET. The job of the security detachment was to protect the Australian embassy, the diplomatic staff there, and allow them to carry out their diplomatic role in Baghdad, so represent Australia uh, in, mm-hmm. in Baghdad. And my role specifically was to command the, the armoured vehicles to allow them to travel around Baghdad or the greater Baghdad area to go to Iraqi ministries, to go to other, other nations or coalition embassies. So I had uh, seven seven armored vehicles and uh, and again about twenty five uh, twenty five soldiers. So Baghdad itself then was a really interesting time. So we'd really only had coalition forces in the country since two thousand and three, but it was a a country which had seen its fair share of violence and conflict. You know they'd been through the Iran Iraq wars. They'd lived under a um, pretty vicious dictator of Saddam Hussein. 2003, they'd had a, a large amount of coalition, you know, hundreds of thousands of coalition forces come into the country. At this stage in 2004, Baghdad itself was still a, a functioning capital city. So it was the capital city of, of Iraq, um, had a population of about 7 million. And these 7 million people were just trying to get on with life in, in a conflict zone. Yeah. It was a city which wow. was really in the throes of civil war really mm. the, the, you know the key players there is with the the, um, the sunni so the sunni minority which had been in power under saddam hussein were actively vying to discredit the current uh, government to regain mm-hmm. their power base the shia majority were again actively fighting against the sunnis 
And interestingly, they were quietly being fed some really sophisticated weapons, particularly around those improvised explosive devices, but, th- but they were being fed across the border from Iran. To add to the complexity, when the American administration was running the country, they went through what, what they call a, went through a debathification process. So the, a- anyone who had any ties with the Ba'ath Party um, was removed from their role. So what it meant was that a lot of senior bureaucrats senior military officers, senior people in the in the police were all removed from their jobs. Uh, so it, it meant, one, oh. that you had a lack of leadership in these organisations, but secondly, you had some very intelligent, very powerful people with some really interesting experience and training under their belt, um, again, actively trying to get their jobs back, and often they were doing that through violence. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea. Final group, which was very active at the time, is is one that I I call the asshole factor. So what happens when <laughs> when law and order in these places breaks down is you have these vi- violent and criminal elements rise up. So there was a lot of a lot of criminal activity going on, a lot of extortion, a lot of murder, a lot of robbery happening in the city as well. Um, and wow. so with all this was also the fact that there was hundreds of thousands of coalition forces in the country as well. So I, I remember I used to be able to stand on top of our headquarters, which was w- one of the, the higher buildings in the in the area where we worked. So we had a view across the skyline of the city. And any time of the day or night, you could stand up there and there would always be something happening, you know, a, a thump of an explosion off in the distance, a plume of smoke, sirens, oh a, a, rock, a, you know, a rocket attack, uh, it was, it was very violent place, and there was always a lot of things going on, and probably the most gruesome. But the the emergence of the IED threat, and they came in a range of forms. So they would be roadside bombs, um, either triggered by somebody mm-hmm. with a with a command detonated wire, as simple as connecting a battery to a, a length of speaker cord, which set off a, a a bomb sitting next to the road as somebody passed. There was a level of sophistication in some of them where they were used used remote controls, so. Anything right. from gar- garage door openers, like phones, or did they? Yeah, were they so able to phone, use their phones, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Phones were starting to emerge, not so much in two thousand and four, but when I was back no. in two thousand six, that technology was really starting to take off because right. it, it added a whole new level of functionality to devices. Um, of course, uh, more so in two thousand and four, we were seeing garage door remotes and uh, remote control toys were used a lot as triggers oh. for. for um, and then the most, you know, the saddest but also most gruesome was was the suicide uh, IEDs. So um, right. they came really in two forms, which was individuals with suicide vests or or bombs in in bags that they were carrying. Um, but what we saw a, an enormous, very rapid proliferation of was the the vehicle borne IEDs. So suicide drivers who would strap themselves in a in a vehicle with a bomb in the back, drive the streets looking for. A coalition patrol or a Iraqi army or police um, patrol and drive into that organization and let let their bomb off or or drive into a checkpoint into um, a secure area and and detonate their their explosive device and that again that was a reg- regular occurrence to the point where it would happen multiple times daily in, oh, uh, my in God. Baghdad. and the re- results were were quite often large numbers of civilian casualties as much as there were um, military casualties as well. Right. Oh, uh, so It's so hard to imagine. My goodness, yeah. Yeah, and Canada so, and Australia, it's uh, quite similar. And, uh, and 
it was one of those things I really struggled to get my head around. Um, you know, you grow up in in Canada, you grow up in in Australia, you're not exposed to people with homicidal views. You know, um, no. it, it's very different, very difficult to get your head around the fact that there is a a percentage of the population that are actively trying to kill you. Maybe not you personally, but but what you represent, or if they had a yeah. chance, they they would. They would try and kill you. And then another chunk of the population which really doesn't care whether you, you live or die. Very, And, and, and they, they talk about at the time there were anything up to 40,000 active insurgents in, in the country. So 40,000 people who would, who oh, would go God. out of their way to, to, to kill me, my soldiers, the people I'm there to protect. Right. And, and not worry about killing themselves in the process. So that makes yeah. it, you know, like what do you do with that? They're 100% committed. And it's very difficult to protect yourself from somebody who is willing to take their own life to yeah. to kill you. Wow. Anyway, sorry. That, that's yeah, that's serious. okay. <laughs> it's, it's, but it is a pretty serious topic. And, and again, it was something which mm -hmm. which took me a long time to get my head around. Um, so we, so I had, like I said, I had seven vehicles broken up into three patrols. And and I had at least two of those patrols. So, so um, you know, two, two vehicles at any one time out on the road picking up diplomats, dropping off diplomats, moving military people around as well. We did quite a lot of it at the time. Uh, mm -hmm. So my guys were exposed all day, every day, to the likelihood of, of, a, of a, a bomb going off uh, and injuring yeah. them, which leads me to yeah. 25th of October 2004. Interesting. So 25th of October 2004, we're actually only a couple of months away from the 15th anniversary of this. Wow. So yeah, is, yeah, geez. No, Seems crazy, but yeah, it's r it? rapidly approaching. But oh. yeah, this this particular morning, I I commanded one one of the patrols. Um, so we had the second job of the day, which was a very much a routine job, taking some military people into the international zone up to the north. So an international zone was really the CBD of Baghdad, which was cordoned off using big concrete bollards. They call them T walls. But to get in there, you need to go through a a checkpoint. And it was they were quite rigorous in their searches, so it was relatively safe in there. But also, it's kind of putting all your eggs in one basket, sticking everyone in the city. So if there were rockets coming, right. if they were going to land anywhere, they'd land somewhere in the international zone. So yeah, sorry. So we were taking a, a, a some military people into the international zone, dropping some off, picking some up, and then heading out to the along the the infamous route Irish, which was arguably the most dangerous route in the world at the time. But this particular morning, we left about 8 a.m. and it had been extremely hot. So we were, it was late October, so it was just coming out of that really hot period. And I remember driving out of our compound and thinking, Meh, starting to cool off a bit. You know, what a, what a, it actually looks like quite a beautiful Baghdad morning. And, and to be honest, that's, that's really my last memory for a while of that morning. We drove down the road, went around a roundabout, really only about 600 metres from our from the, the, the gate of our compound when a, a bomb on the side of the road detonated, injured me, my crew. I was standing up in the turret, so my head and neck were exposed and the, the bomb went off to the right-hand side of my vehicle. So I was, I was exposed to the blast. L luckily, the, the gunner next to me and the driver um, down, uh, closed down in front of the vehicle weren't exposed to the blast itself, but they, they were exposed to the, um, the uh, concussion of the blast wave itself. So we were all knocked out for a minute. We were doing probably 60 k's an hour, so we careered off the road uh, onto the median strip and, and hit and uprooted a fairly large tree, which was in some ways quite lucky because that's what stopped us. Otherwise, I don't know what we would have hit. Um, that's right. 
I oh. guess without without going into too much of the grisly detail, I was I was in pretty bad shape. Um, mm. I ended up uh, getting first aid from the guys on the ground. They did an amazing job protecting me, the vehicle, putting in a cordon very quickly, uh, and then getting me and and uh, one of the other guys in my my crew to hospital very, very quickly. Uh, I'd had I'd had fragmentation wounds to my sinuses and my neck, and particularly the the, the one in in my neck had nicked, nicked the uh, carotid artery and I had a quite a large hematoma and they were really worried that was going to cut off the blood supply to my, my brain. So the guys got me into hospital um, within about 15 minutes and I was rolled straight into surgery. So um, honestly, I could talk all afternoon about this incident. The end result was the, the soldiers on the ground saved my life. I've sort of, I've spoken about this incident so much and, and I guess my thinking has, has interestingly evolved over the years as a, as a young troop leader. I, I spoke a lot to teams about to go to, to Iraq after this, uh, and I spoke really about the tactical things that we learnt from this, about doing mm-hmm. rehearsals, about putting in cordons, about first aid, those sorts of things. And I guess as my career has progressed and my thinking has, oh, I don't know if matured's the right word, but it's evolved to think rather from the tactical level more to the strategic level. I've thought about more things which I've learned about this and some of the other incidents that I've been involved in. So like I said, I, I could speak all afternoon about this, but we don't have the time today. Perhaps another one. <laughs> yeah. yeah <laughs> we could just talk about that. There are so many lessons that I pull out of this. And one of the great things about this is that often people hear this bit of this story and they ask me questions about it and the questions they ask make me think well I'd never considered this before they're thinking on a different level than I have been and and often they causes me to reassess some of the things which happened um on that that day but I guess some of the the interesting things and and some of the the lessons I when I talk about the crisis management and the leadership side of things some of the thinking around succession planning so I was the boss Mm -hmm. and I was instantly removed when that bomb went off yeah i was conscious but i was in no condition to do my job and succession planning is not a military term and in fact i i really wasn't familiar with that term till after i left the military Uh, and that's because succession planning is just the really way the way we do business my my troop sergeant so my second in command of my troop knew my job fairly intimately the senior corporal below him knew how to do his job and when I was injured, there actually wasn't any delay in any kind of decision-making because my troop sergeant instantly stood up. When he looked down into my, my turret and saw me as a bit of a bloody mess, um, yep. he instantly took command of the situation. Uh, and I think that's such an important one for other organisations to learn. Make sure that you are not the central point of failure in your organisation and make sure that Next senior person to you knows how to do your job. So if, you know, heaven forbid you mm. step out step out on the road and get hit by a bus, your organisation doesn't suffer significantly from that. At the end of the day with this incident, the war didn't stop because I was injured. These guys ended up doing another two and a half months in Iraq. They were ambushed twice when they were up, up north, up near the Syrian border. So wow. a lot of things going on and it, and it didn't stop just because the troop leader was was injured and flown out of the country. Right. Uh, and I and same happens in the business world. You know, you, your competition doesn't give you a break because you've been injured or because you're removed from from the situation. You don't get any 
pause or any lag time to make decisions, those sorts of things. So, yeah, I think succession planning is just so important. It's really a responsibility at the board level, but I also say to executives, it's not just about having somebody identified to, to step into your role. It's not necessarily about when when you retire in five years' time, who's going to be the next person. It's for when yep. you're not – it's for when you step on that flight to, you know, from Sydney to LA and you're off the air for 15 hours. What if something happens then? Who who has the authority to make make the decisions? Mm-hmm. And wow. the other the other one which I always I kind of think of myself as um well one I was very lucky to survive this. I, yeah. I, I, some of the work I did later, I saw sadly soldiers killed from smaller bombs when they were further away than I was. I was just extremely lucky here, but I but I I also feel that I was fortunate. To, to be exposed to this because it helped me understand real risk or the real threats that are involved and when you're doing risk assessment. So being mm-hmm. able to take take the blinkers off in what real risk was because at the end of the day, I, I took, I took organisations overseas again. I did a lot of training in the military where things were pretty serious and I know in the military you, you can get it into your mindset that, that the greatest threat is to be on the mat in front of your commanding officer getting yelled at. It doesn't, <laughs> to, to break all the stereotypes down, it doesn't happen that often. Um, yes. But I, I think people think, well, the worst thing for me is to get yelled at by my boss, to let the team down, to um, to get marked down in my annual report, maybe not be as competitive as I could be for the next posting, something like that. Whereas right. for me, it became just so abundantly clear that the real risk, the real threat to an organisation is was was for us. It was flesh and blood, uh, and it's the same for right. a lot of corporate organisations. If you're, you think of a, a manufacturing, it's 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 not about your share price. It's not about being able to deliver the product in time. It's actually about the safety of your staff. So. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can have a that safety can have a flow-on effect, but if you know if you have somebody seriously injured or killed, that's going to have a dramatic effect across your organisation. Uh, and at the end of the day, it will reach areas of you personally and the team that you work for more so than you can probably ever expect. Yes, yeah, I can totally understand that. Now, what? Now, tell, tell us about you. you went back after this unbelievable injury that you survived from and you went back in 2006 so tell us a little bit about that i have a few little quirks you know you don't get that close to a bomb going off without ending up with a few little quirks but i don't have any debilitating injury and definitely nothing that stopped me from continuing my military career so again really like except the wife that was ready to kill you (laughs) and again that is that is probably the discussion um of a whole nother podcast in fact i could probably do it I could probably do a whole series on knucklehead calendar going back to war zones after being blown up and his amazing wife um, I think and, so. and how she dealt with that. But um, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I did feel a strong obligation to go back. Yeah, of and again, for some of those things that I'd learned the first time, you know, I knew the environment. I did have that, that understanding of what the team needed to train for before going over there. So, so yeah, I'd, it'd been 18 months later, I'd, I'd been promoted, I'd gone up a level of responsibility. So I was the second in command of the, the, the 110 person combat team. So we deployed in, in uh, March, 2006. And it was a, um, I, I hope I don't sound um, 
crass when I say it was professionally a very rewarding trip, mm-hmm. uh, but in it was the, some, some really tragic incidents. So we'd, we'd been involved in a shooting at one of the Iraqi ministries where some Australians had shot and killed some, some bodyguards. All, they did all, all the right things, mm-hmm. but they, they'd assumed that, that a vehicle driving erratically had been a suicide bomber, so they'd, they'd engaged them, and it turned out that they were, they were actually security guards. So one was killed, three were badly injured. So very, very tragic. Worked through that. Um, we also had a rocket hit yeah, our compound, wow. which, which injured um, five of our soldiers. So I talked about the international zone having rockets falling out of the sky all the time. Well, right. um, yeah, six o'clock in the morning, one morning, we had a rocket hit hit our compound and we're just very lucky not to lose anyone from that but i yes. but the thing the thing which uh, um I, I always come back to with that iraq trip and it was really the pivotal point or the focal point for that trip was the tragic death of, of one of our soldiers so jake kovko uh who uh, accidentally shot himself in one of the rooms in the accommodation at the back of the australian embassy where where they lived oh my god uh, Tragic incident. Yeah. Jake was a young guy, great bloke, um, had a young wife and young kids, and the circumstances were, were were really sad. You know, we kind of, I think, I think we probably would have dealt better with losing more soldiers in a in a gunfight or a bomb attack or something like that. Just the fact that we we'd lost a soldier through a, a mishap, uh, through an accident was was really sad and really crushing for a lot of yeah. a lot of a lot of us and more so i think it was just some of the things which happened post jake's death um which were just even now seem just completely unbelievable some of the listeners m- may not know this there was just so so much to it i think it started when when the minister for defense at the time uh brendan nelson spoke about a, a soldier shooting himself cleaning his rifle and then then a, a very short time later, he, he released another media media um, re- release saying, "Oh no, it had been a pistol." It sowed the seed of doubt, and we, we've spoken about it in previous podcasts about these media scrums and how mm. these things just snowball so quickly. Firstly, there was some inconsistent reporting, which the media were onto straight away, and then there was. Uh, the wrong body was returned to Australia. You know, so sad. When yes. a, a, a European contractor was brought back, and and to be fair, you know, Jake's wounds were such that he was unrecognisable. But still, it just added to the the tragedy and added to the impact on on poor Jake's family as well, yes. having to go through that. And oh I think gosh. this was exacerbated by Jake's mother, who. In, in complete fairness, did probably what every mother would do, and I know what what my it's what my mother would have done too, which is refusal to accept that her son could have been at fault in any way, that that he could have been responsible for this accident. So yeah. she she started to listen to a lot of the re- these reports and came up with her own theories, which were really conspiracy theories, and these were fed to the media and they were they were cultivated by the media, and so there was this this air that happened across the whole incident air of um distrust in what was being said and it's fair i mean it just seems like such a such a far-fetched story jake accidentally shooting himself jake was a professional soldier so how did that happen the wrong body going back to australia and then the investigation into the wrong body coming back to australia the the officer conducting that left a draft copy on a disc in the corners club computer 
which was fed to uh, an Australian journalist. So there was a military board of inquiry, which which was quite a messy incident. And and at the time, my boss was called. You know, we were still in Baghdad doing our job there, and my boss spent a lot of time away, three o'clock in the morning, facing this a video teleconference back to the military board of inquiry. Series of investigations. We had the New South Wales Police come up as part of the investigation. Had the military police, and 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 all the time, my soldiers were trying to get on with their job, and they were right. looking at looking at this online. They, they had access to the internet, so they were looking at all this online media back in Australia, which was really calling their professionalism into question. Um, oh so gosh. really difficult incident to manage. Um, you know, from from a leadership perspective, yeah, really difficult to keep the guys focused on their job. And make sure that, that people still considered us a viable organisation to keep protecting the the Australian diplomats as well. When we we're so many things are being called into into question as well about our our ability to do the job. Yeah. So yes, yeah, such such a tragic incident, um, and then oh, just all these seemingly unbelievable circumstances which happened post Jake's death as well. Um, and right. again probably a whole podcast there um, just in that. But um, mm-hmm. but there were some some obvious lessons which came out of that for crisis management. It's really that controlling the narrative. So d- defence has got so much better at this, but at the time defence wasn't really good at dealing with the Australian media or it was the international media by this stage as well. It was it was an international mm-hmm. incident. Uh, so they, they kind of just let the media run with whatever story they wanted and didn't didn't get journalists in their back pocket or on their on their side. So the end result for us on the ground was that we were dealing with seeing all these negative media come up, calling our ability into question, calling calling into question whether we should actually be still doing the job, things like that. Uh, and oh, big, it gosh. was extremely difficult for us to do that. And, of course, these conspiracy theories as well, which got people really, got got a lot of the soldiers really angry as well. Yes, I'm sure. Of course um, it was. Quite simply, a lot of these theories was that, that someone someone in our organization organization actually murdered Jake. Uh, so you know, completely far fetched, but difficult. Unbelievable. Not to, not to take a hit from that when you're seeing it published in it by the Australian media. Yeah, no kidding. So there were a few things which which I I would have loved to have seen done from from a military perspective, even from a from a ministerial perspective. Um, you know, Br- Brendan Nelson, that the, he was a very new de- um, defence minister at that time, and I, I I've got a lot of time for Brendan Nelson. He's now the the director of the Australian War Memorial, and really just found his niche in life, and he's just so good at that job, and mm. just such a an inspirational speaker, and just knows subject matter in depth. But he, as a defence minister, was probably poorly informed by, and they're probably military people who are informing this, but feeding him information which he would release and then have to retract and or correct himself. And again, that that initially sowed that seed of doubt, which had the media just all over him. Right. Um, And then a lot of these a lot of these things went on, and at no stage did defence step in in any way and say, "Hey." Hang on, these guys are professional soldiers. One thing we do know is that all these conspiracy theories are just not true, and yeah, they're trying line. to do. Yeah, and they are continuing yeah. to do a very difficult job in a very dangerous place. So let's 
let's keep that in mind when we're when we're speaking about them. I would have loved Defence to have released something a, a, around that to give us a little bit of top cover. But yeah, not, that would have been nice. I, I, I don't want to sound surly about that. I, I mean, I, I actually learned so much from that. And Defence has really progressed in how they they deal with the media these days. Mm-hmm. And then I, the other thing which I, I've really only realised quite recently, which is and it comes around to really the value of diversity in organisation. Uh, and it was a failing probably on our behalf. And it's a an organisational failing probably from from the military a little bit. It probably happens still a lot. And I've, I've really worked this out from doing um, operational design and planning with military people recently. I still do a bit of this now. And I do it a lot with reserve army officers. It's really interesting to come from a world where I've done this sort of planning with professional military officers and now doing it with part-time military officers. And interestingly, part-time military officers are really good at taking the blinkers off and thinking outside the box a little bit. And when you're doing risk assessments and when you're doing scenario and contingency planning, they come up with a much broader spread of threats, of possible scenarios you know if they're they're coming up with what's the most likely thing to occur what's the most dangerous thing to occur they come up with a broader range of things than a group of professional army officers and so i Mm. think you know when when we were going to iraq in 2006 we we prepared and trained we did our own risk assessment there and we prepared and trained for all things like rockets falling out of the sky for being shot at for being blown up all those sorts of things but we never trained for what would happen if one of our own soldiers accidentally shot himself. And then That's what right. would happen if the, the media took a negative view of us or anything like that? Whereas maybe somebody with a slightly different background would say, well, hang on, you're, you're in a war zone, you're operating weapons all day, every day, you're changing the degrees of weapon readiness. Why wouldn't it be likely that, you know, you're, you're from, a, from a clinical risk perspective, the exposure is is high so it's a constant yeah, exposure that's true. To yeah. and the 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 result of of this could be catastrophic so really it should have been in red at the top of any risk register but we never yeah. considered that um of course and then it, same same goes with the media I, I actually in my headquarters over there i had cnn and al jazeera playing on my two flat screens all day every day the media was prolific in baghdad in particular at the time why didn't we think about what would happen in regards to reputational risks and how that would flow on to our credibility, even our ability to do our operations there. Because at the end result, the end of the day with this, we had so much scrutiny put on us. I'm sure at, high, at the upper levels of defence, they were questioning whether they should pull us out or not. So mission failure for us if we were going back home. Um, right. And you came back for this. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> But oh like I said, I, I, I truly believe I was the right person for the job then. And, and yeah, whilst sure. I was dealing with some some pretty horrific stuff, I'm I'm confident I made the right choice to go back. Yeah. And, and so my career went on. I, I I did a few other jobs. Like I said, worked in Canberra for a bit, went to Afghanistan doing that post-blast work. But one of the really rewarding things I did is when I came back from that Afghanistan trip, I went to Townsville to work at the Combat Training Centre. And I was developing exercises and training activities for leadership teams about to go to Iraq and Afghanistan. And it really, again, this has shaped so much of my thinking for what I do now running, Mm -hmm. running crisis management training, because that's in essence what we were doing. That's right. Uh, Yeah. And it just, it clarified in my mind 
the fact that leadership teams who really did well, you know, we, we put them through some pretty grueling training. We threw every conceivable scenario at them, which they might face when they get over there. So when they get there, they already have a, they already have a decision-making process, leadership process, well-drilled. But what I did yeah. see was these, these leadership teams had arrived already with a process, uh, already engaged with each other, who did really well at these training activities. And, and when they went overseas, they were able to really exert strong leadership because they, they knew how to just cut away all the fluff and get on yep. with decision-making for when, when something does inevitably occur. And I, it's a different, I guess that's a different mindset as well between military people and, and other organisations. Military yep. people actually have an expectation that things will go wrong. Uh, you know, oh. so that, that, that I'm not sure which military commander said it, um, but that no, no plan ever survives eight showers. So basically saying plan all you like, um, yeah. you know, because the planning is very important, but expect things to change and be different, expect things to go wrong. So that's a mindset that military people bring. And I learned right. in, in, in the private sector um, that a lot of organisations don't have that mindset. In fact, Australian organisations, the Canadians might be similar, have that very optimistic mindset that things won't go wrong. Um, I think that's great mm -hmm. in a lot of ways, but it doesn't help you when things yeah. do go wrong. So I, I just try and reinforce with people. Actually, I, I like keep that mindset, but um, I just want to make sure you have things in place. So if perchance something does go wrong, you're confident in making your making decisions and fishing your organisation out of trouble. So yeah, and these these teams I I saw with well drilled decision making processes could come together, cut away everything that's on the periphery which doesn't matter towards their decision making, make decisions quickly, and and then get on with executing those decisions. Uh, right, and right. and I've I've brought that with me to to the organisation which I've started up, and I've developed really a um a methodology from what I've seen in regards to best practices for decision-making. And I, I love training uh, organisations up to use that because they work it out pretty quickly that they can come together, make decisions quickly and get on with executing those decisions. Um, whereas and I've seen all, all too often highly intelligent, highly educated executives come together and really struggle to make short-term decisions just you know they're used to having 98 percent of the information they're used to having a really long decision making timeline you give them 60 percent of the information tell them to make a decision in 45 minutes and they have an inability to do that so yeah. i'd like to think that i've just developed some tools for crisis teams for executives for boards to be able to do that quickly so they can best protect their organization that's fantastic. And, and you have such a unique background and set of experiences to bring. It's like you're the only person probably on the planet who is taking <laughs> it, you know, really from from the military experience you've had into the corporate world. I don't maybe there are other people, but I don't know. Uh, but it just seems like such a natural fit. I, th I think it is. And, I, and I, mm. you know, I've, I've worked a lot around veteran employment over the years. As well, and I think a lot of people struggle when they come out to feel real worth in what they're doing after leaving the military. But I've really, I really imagine. enjoy this crisis management side of things because I feel there's real worth in protecting Australian organisations by giving their leadership teams the ability to learn and to use what, what lessons I've learned and what tools I've developed over the years from, from my time in the military. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for that. I really enjoyed to be able to talk about that finally. <laughs>
I feel I'm like I've spoken do... a lot about myself. No, it's so, good. Yeah. <laughs> good. And I'm hoping we do a little bit more on it too. I would, I would like there's, I have other questions, but you know, I'll see even for another time. Yeah. Okay. yeah. <laughs> and, and what's our next uh, podcast going to be about? Well, so we're getting, getting to the, to the back end of our, um, of, of this six part series. So our initial inaugural series for, for, for the, the, <laughs> The Coogee Bay special, yeah. It's um, so right. the last one we'll do is a wrap up of of, of the final product tampering one, Great. which is um, Pepsi uh, and the syringes in the the cans of Diet Pepsi, the copycat incidents that came out of it, and the the really aggressive way they handled it. Which I, oh yeah, that'll be that'll be a juicy one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I won't be talking about myself. So <laughs> oh, I'm disappointed, but that's okay. It'll be good. I'll get you doing it again. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Garth. That was awesome. We'll just finish off with pe- people want to get in touch. If they've got any comments about what we're saying, please email us. Uh, information at trebuchetpivot.com. Get on our website. There's a link there of how you can contact us, and that's just www.trebuchetpivot.com. Yeah, love to love to see some some feedback from these podcasts um perhaps we can start thinking about the next series and what people would like to hear about it's really interesting when i when i talk to people now about this even you know i even met a bloke at my daughter's football game the other day who spoke about what i did for a job and he said oh i've just come back from india and we had this incident over there with um you know an extortion attempt with people saying that that our product was was um that our product was contaminated oh. And then told me this amazing crisis story of of how they, how their leadership team got themselves out of trouble and what it, the impact that it had on their organisation, how they returned back to to business as usual. So yeah, I, I'm hoping that people will have crisis scenarios or crisis case studies in their head, and uh, and if they'd like us to um to speak about them, I, I'd love to hear from. I have one from the music business. We'll talk about that later. That'd be great. I mean, you've had that wealth of experience from the from the music industry over the years, so uh, I'd love to hear about that. It was very public, and I, I'd, I'd be really interested to hear your view on uh, what they should have done, because right. it didn't go well. Okay, thank you. Finishing off, I, my wife's been giggling at me about the um, the Coogee Bay special and uh, never knowing when you're, <laughs> when you're going to get a poop in your ice cream. So. <laughs> 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 Excellent. I love it.